0: to back like that Um, that was so good Kevin that was so good so um, I was lamenting to my husband a little bit because I don't know if you were here last week he talked about how he was so encouraged um, that the three sermons that had come before him that Marvin and Jesse had preached just led right into his sermon so he was just sure that you know God was in it what he was going to preach about And I thought, man, I'm kind of jealous of that because we're going to talk about something today that might seem like kind of a non sequitur. And i was sitting there going, wow, it would have been nice if I had that kind of lead in, you know. So Marvin gets up here today to introduce the service and he says, we want to worship like David, We we want the heart of David. Well, we're talking today about the tabernacle of David and about his heart, so I thought, Thank you, Lord. I needed that. That was really good. So um, let's pray together, and then we're just going to dive right in. I got a lot of stuff here, and I want to give it all to you, okay? Father, we just thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for this time to really dig into your word, begin to um, understand the hour in which we live, the hour in, in which we're finding ourselves and finding our purpose in the midst of that. God, I just ask that you would open your word to us today, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation this morning as we study David's tabernacle, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we're just going to jump right in. Are you ready? We're going to look at a passage in the prophet Amos. Now, it might take you a little while to find that. It's in the minor prophets before you get to the New Testament. So I'm going to give you a minute. It's also going to be up here. We're going to look at Amos 9, chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. All right, you ready? This is a prophet. The prophet's words, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Then they that possess the remnant of Eden and all of the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. And then we're gonna switch down to 14. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God." So um, just I want to just dissect this passage just a little bit. It begins with, on that day, OK? You, you see that phrase, on that day? Um, In the prophetic understanding from the prophets of the Old Testament, when they spoke about on that day or that day or the day of the Lord, it was speaking about the end of this age. It was speaking about something that was gonna happen in the future. Usually it was connected with the idea of the coming of Messiah, okay? Now, we as Christians look at that and we say the end of this age is going to have Messiah come back, okay? But I want you to think about this in terms of this is a prophecy about the end of this age, okay? Before Jesus returns. So he says, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. And that's going to be our topic today. And I just want you to know that There's a little bit of disagreement among scholars as to what Tabernacle of David refers to. Some scholars believe it just refers to the lineage of David, of which Jesus, of course, is in that lineage. So it could refer to the reestablishment of the kingdom under Jesus, under the lineage of David. However, um, other scholars believe that if they were really talking about the lineage of David, The idea would have been to say the house of David. That would have been the more common way to express that, not the tabernacle of David. By the way, tabernacle just means tent or temporary shelter, booth, okay? It's an old word, I guess, maybe, tabernacle. So today we're going to take this as meaning literally the tabernacle of David, okay? And we're going to talk about what was the tabernacle of David. I mean, that's. Maybe not something you've ever heard teaching about before. So also included in this passage is they will possess the remnant of Edom, which by the way, Edom were the historical enemies of Israel. And it's talking about them possessing them, that their enemies are going to be um, owned by them, if you will. Okay, that their enemies are no longer gonna be their enemies. Think about who the enemies of Israel are are at this point. Um, And you have to include Islamic nations. Do you know God's saving souls in the midst of these Islamic nations? Okay. But that's that's a bunny trail. Okay. Um, And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So I want us to look at, you know, we're trying to understand what that means. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. And it's always good if you can get scripture to explain scripture, right? Okay, so this passage is referred to in the New Testament. Did you know that? It's in the context of when they had the Jerusalem council because there was a lot of confusion about Gentiles were getting saved. (laughs) And they kinda didn't know what to do with that. Gentiles were getting baptized in the spirit They really didn't know what to do with that, okay? So, Peter told his story about what happened with him in the household of Cornelius. Um, Paul was telling his story about, hey, they're getting saved and baptized just like we did, okay? And so, in that Jerusalem council, we're gonna look at it, it's Acts 15, if you wanna turn to it. We're also gonna have it up here. Acts 15. (laughs) almost there. Beginning in verse 16. Got it Daniel? There we go. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So um, James is the one who's speaking here. He's connecting up this idea of the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David and the salvation of the Gentiles. Okay? So the final verse that we looked at in Amos 9 talked about Israel being restored to the land. So I want you to keep in mind those three things, the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David, the salvation of the Gentiles, and Israel being back in the land and enjoying the land. Okay? Those three things. So we want to look at what was David's tabernacle? Have you ever heard, anybody heard of David's tabernacle before? A few people. Okay. All right. So in order to understand David's tabernacle, we got to back up a little bit. we got to back up to the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, by the way, I forgot, Kevin. Can you pass out the, the sheets? They're on the back table. Totally forgot about that. Sorry. So I've gotten a, a sheet here with the scripture references so that you can look it up later. I'm not preaching from this sheet, but I want you to have trust that what I'm telling you is the truth, okay, that this is what's in scripture. So the Ark of the Covenant, um, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, okay? If you've seen the movie Ten Commandments, you know that you know, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, right? They are in the wilderness, they're living in tents, and God gives Moses instruction that what he is to do is to build a tent, which would be called the Tent of Meeting, okay? And he gives directions for all the furnishings that are to be in the tent. But the center point, the very heart of everything that's going on in that tent was the Ark of the Covenant. And Daniel, there's a picture of that, an artist rendering of that. If you could, yeah, there we go. It's pretty accurate, except for the poles, the carrying poles should be covered with gold as well, okay? So what was this Ark of the Covenant, right? It was a box built out of acacia wood, covered with gold on the inside and the outside. The top of the box was not wood. The top of the box was solid gold, a solid slab of gold. And the artist's rendering here, that's cherubim that were on the top of the ark, okay? So the amazing thing about this is it was meant to represent the glory of God in the midst of Israel. It was meant to represent the very throne of God, okay? This is not the throne of God, of course, but it was meant to represent to them so that they had something that spoke to their hearts of God is with us, God is in the midst of us, okay? God makes this remarkable statement. This is from Leviticus. He says, I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. By the way, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. What a good name, the mercy seat. All right. This Ark of the Covenant was to be behind a very heavy veil. It was not to be seen by the average Israelite. It was not to be touched. It was just to be a presence there. Okay. There was one time when a human being could approach the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God that was there. One time, every year, there was one day, and it was called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, God had commanded that the high priest would purify himself, he would go in behind the veil, in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle that blood for atonement for his sins, for the sins of all of the people. And for one year until the next year, their sins were covered. Their sins were atoned for. Now, you can't escape, this is a representation of Jesus, okay? This is Jesus. Hebrews even calls him our great high priest. In his very own blood is what atones for our sins. And this was giving them a picture of that thousands of years before it was actually going to happen. Okay? So that's the Ark of the Covenant. So you would think, oh my gosh, the people would revere this. They would be so in awe of this. They would just um, worship God for providing this, this um, representation of his presence with them. And they did, some of the time, okay? But about 600 years after this Ark was created, um, the Israelites were in the land and they were in a war with the Philistines. And they were losing, they were losing battles. And somebody had the idea, uh, maybe what we need to do is take the Ark of the Covenant in to battle with us. And surely, if we did that, God would help us to win the battle, right? Okay, so, you know, who knows what was in their heart, what they were thinking. Perhaps they were thinking it would be like a good luck charm, you know, that, man, if we got the presence of God with us, everything's going to go good. Um, Perhaps they were thinking that they could manipulate God into victory, that, oh, surely he wouldn't let the ark fall to the Philistines, so we've got to win if we got the Ark there, right? Either way, um, God is not able to be manipulated. (laughs) And they lost that battle too, and the Philistines captured the Ark, okay? So this representation of the very heart of God, the glory of God, right in the midst of the Israelites is now in enemy hands, okay? So it's a somewhat humorous story. Um, Doesn't end very well, but the Philistines took the Ark and they put it in their temple. And their main god at the time was Dagon, and they just parked the Ark right there beside Dagon. Figured, okay, another holy thing in in our temple. Next day when they came in, Dagon was face down in the dirt. Okay. Kind of surprised them, I think. They stood the idol back up again. The next day, Dagon is face down in the dirt. This time, the head and the hands are broken off, okay? So they started thinking, oh, <laughs> there's something, something going on here, right? Okay, so there's, there's a lot more of the story about um, tumors breaking out among their people. I mean, it was, eventually it came to the point of we gotta get this thing out of here, okay? Um, It was among the Philistines for seven months, I think, and that was all they could take, all right? So their solution was, let's put it on a cart, (laughs) let's get some oxen, drag in the cart, and we're going to send it down the road, okay? And that's what they did. They sent it down the road, right? So it comes back into Israel, comes back into the territory, and it's found by some men at uh, Beth Shemesh. I'm probably butchering that, okay. Um, And at first, everybody's really happy. Hey, we got the Ark back, we got the Ark back. And then somebody gets a bright idea. We need to open it up and look at it and, okay. So a lot of people died. A lot of people died. So now they're afraid, okay. And they say, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna take the ark to uh, a place called kirjath Jirim which in Hebrew literally means the fields of the forest. So this out of the way place, the house of a guy named Abinadab, and they asked his son, Eleazar, he said, you look after it, okay? So essentially, the ark is warehoused in this faraway place, with this one guy who's supposed to look after it, okay. Um, It's like that for 20 years. 20 years. And nobody was looking for the Ark. Nobody was asking about it. Um, King Saul didn't send for it. It's amazing to me, it's amazing to me. But yeah, it was warehoused, all right. So. That's the ark story, and it's going to intersect with David in just two seconds, okay? So, the first mention of David um, is when Samuel came to anoint him to be the future king of Israel. It just jumps right into the story of, oh, this is the guy, okay? Um, he was like 15 years old. He was, a, he was a very young man, and God said, no, this is the guy, this is the The one, I look at the heart and I want this guy. He's gonna be the king. Now that didn't happen for 15 years, but he was chosen. This was the first hearing that you have about David. This is even before David and Goliath. Before all of that, right? So who was this David, this 15 year old guy? Um, He was the youngest of his brothers. And so he was given the job of tending the family's sheep. Okay, and that's just literally what it sounds like. His job was to lead them out to pasture, take them where they could drink water, take them to the place where there was no pasture so they would lay down and chew their cud. Um, One of them fell in a ditch, you know, pull them out. One of them gets lost, go and get it, you know. When nighttime falls you build a fire, And your job is to stand watch over the sheep and make sure that no predators come in and kill any of them. And then you get up the next morning and you do the same thing all over again, okay? Sounds like a pretty lowly position, sounds like a kind of forgotten, somebody's out there doing this, nobody knows them, nobody knows what they're doing, nobody knows anything about whether they're faithful or not. They're hidden from sight, right? David was also a singer, a musician, and a songwriter. Interesting, okay? So he's out there in the desert, in the wilderness with those sheep, and he is singing songs to the Lord and composing songs to the Lord. Now you know some of these songs. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's kind of on the nose, isn't it? I mean, he, he knew that God was shepherding him in the same way that he was looking out after those sheep. I mean, I think about him lying under the stars at night, looking up at the night sky, and he writes, when I consider the heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you visit him? He's writing these kind of songs to the Lord. But this is the incredible thing to me. He was communing with God, and God was revealing himself to David. And how do I know that? It's in the scripture, okay? Look at Psalm 22 with me. Psalm 22, and we're going to start with verse 14. Psalm 22:14. 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a poshirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Who is speaking there? This is Jesus. Jesus is sharing with David what it was gonna be for him when he was hanging on the cross. This is a thousand years before that's gonna happen. But he is already revealing the secrets of his heart to David, and David is writing them into songs. He's having God encounters, okay? I want you to think about that maybe you feel like man I'm I'm the lowest man on the totem pole in my family too (laughs) I got a lowly job that nobody thinks is important um I am no I am a nobody's nobody right but you can be having encounters with God every human being on the planet is wired to be able to have encounters with God I think another revelation that God showed to David, that Jesus showed to David, was the importance in his heart for Jerusalem. At that time, Jerusalem was a nothing town. It was just a few houses and nothing. Nobody thought it was anything important at all. We think of it as important because now we know David made it his capital. He made Jerusalem his capital. So. And we read revelations and we know there's a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. We know God loves Jerusalem. But at that time, Jerusalem was nowheresville. And this funny little story, when David had his encounter with Goliath, right? He takes, you know, he takes his sling and and Goliath falls to the ground. David goes and takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off. Do you know where he took that head? You probably don't. It's really easy to miss it. He took it to Jerusalem. That's all the Bible says about it. It doesn't tell you why. It doesn't tell you what he was thinking, what he did with it when he got to Jerusalem. But I, I like this picture of the enemy of God's head being taken to Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to be crucified and is going to atone for the sins of the whole world. His Goliath's head is buried there somewhere. I love that, I love that. But how did he get that revelation, okay? How did he get that? It was from communing with God. Nobody taught him that. Nobody was able to tell him that except one person. And I think David also probably had a heavenly visitation, but I'm gonna hold that till later, okay? Just keep that in your mind. I'm pretty sure he visited heaven at one point, This is what God said about David. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Nobody else in scripture is given that accolade. Nobody else is called a man or a woman after God's own heart, just David. Just this little shepherd boy (laughs) watching out over the sheep. So when we're beginning to explore the heart of David, as Marvin was saying, we have to look at something. David made a vow. He made a vow before the Lord. And we don't have the actual vow recorded, but we have the commentary on the vow recorded, okay? And that's in Psalm 132. So we're going to pull that up real quick. All right, here we go Psalm 132, beginning in verse 1 the writer of this song says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. So basically David is lamenting about the ark being lost. He's saying it's in the fields of the woods. Everybody knew that. Everybody had heard about that. He'd heard about that since he was a boy. The ark is parked in Abinadab's house in the field of the woods. That's what Kirith Jirim means, okay? He says, behold, we heard about it in Ephrathah. Ephrathah means uh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem and Ephrathah are the same place, just called two different things. He is making a vow before the Lord. I'm not going to build my own house. I'm not going to rest until this happens, until we bring back the ark and it's restored to its proper place of honor and glory in our midst. Okay? So, it was just not acceptable to David that the ark would be treated with that kind of disregard and contempt because he knew that it represented God's presence with them. And that was all important to David, all important. That's what his life was about. So his first act, when he became king, his very first thing that he did, gathered all his leaders together and we're going to get the ark, gonna bring it back, okay? They had a a little misstep at the beginning when they were trying to bring it back and we won't go into all of that today but they ended up bringing it back. So what did he do with it, okay? He built a tabernacle, built a tent, put the ark in the tent. Now here's the question for you. Did he put the big, heavy, thick veil around it so that no one could see it and no one could interact with it? No, Ty, he did not. He did not. What did he do instead? It was left in the open so people could see it. Yes, that's true. He surrounded it with singers. Musicians, those who would praise the Lord. Okay. Um, we've got a lot of the details about it. Um, they did this 24 7. His throne was surrounded by worshipers 24 7. Okay. And we're going to look at some of those and we're just going to go through them really quickly because I want you to understand this is documented in Scripture. This is not somebody's fanciful idea about what it might have been like. This is the way it really was according to the records that we have of his kingship. Um, so we're going to go through them real fast. Daniel, if you would. First Chronicles 16.4. He appointed, uh, that's David, he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank to praise the Lord God of Israel. First Chronicles sixteen thirty seven. So he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. He's funding this out of his treasury, okay? All of these ones that are ministering before the Lord, he's paying for it. These are the singers, heads of the fathers, houses of the Levites who lodged in the chambers. They actually lived there okay, so they could be nearby, and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night, okay? All these were under the direction of their father for the music in the house of the Lord, with cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps for the service of the house of God. Asap, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the authority of the king, So the number of them with their brethren who were instructed in the songs of the Lord, all who were skillful, was 288, and they cast lots for their duty, the small as well as the great, the teacher, with the students. Essentially, you got all of the tribe of the Levites, and they would pull out 288 of them by lot to do this service. for I I don't know for how long of a period of time before they would do that again and rotate some more people in. And one more, now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years and above. The number of individual males was 38,000, and of these, 24,000 were to look after the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 were officers and judges, 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I made, said David, (laughs) for giving praise. Okay, so it's a large number of people um you know kind of estimated about 10,000 people were involved in this project this was not a small undertaking but it was important to david that the lord be praised that the lord be worshiped and revered and that we would do it together around his throne so that's why i say i think david had a heavenly visitation because nothing, nothing like this had ever been done before. And you might look at that and go, Well, that's kind of a harebrained idea. Why did David do that? And why did God let him do that? I think it's because God was all in favor, okay, first off, and because it mirrored what is going on in heaven even right now as we're sitting here, okay. We're just going to take a quick look. and Guys, I'm trying to do a quick flyby here so that we don't <laughs> go too long, all right? got to look at some passages in Revelation to see what it looks like in the heavenly realms right this very minute. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You Understand, this is 24-7, this is going on. You'll never go to heaven and ever see this having them taking a break and nobody's doing anything right now. And we'll be back in 10, right? No, no, this goes on continually, all right? And Daniel, go ahead and go to the next one. Now when he had taken the scroll This is Jesus took the scroll. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. By the way, this is interesting. The 24 elders being the human beings that are in this situation. In one hand, they have a musical instrument. And in one hand, they have a bowl full of incense, which are prayers bringing together of worship and prayer, okay? You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your own blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And then the last one, Daniel. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So if we were able to visit heaven, and I hope someday maybe before I die, I would like to do this, (laughs) okay? After I die, that's okay too, but... I would like to see this the glory of this the majesty of this where God and Jesus are given the preeminent place and there's no there's no half-hearted okay sometimes I'm I'm hard on myself thinking, you're just too half-hearted, you know, you need to go after this, okay? I don't know if you've ever had that thought, but in heaven, it's not half-hearted at all, okay? So, Daniel, if you could pull up Amos 9 again. want to look at this again with fresh eyes. I personally think that this idea of raising up the Tabernacle of David is raising up a prayer and worship movement. And we are, frankly, we are seeing that in this time, in this, in our lifetimes, okay? Um, Many of you are probably aware that there's a place called the International House of Prayer in Kansas City and they started in 1997 to to worship and prayer to the Lord 24-7. And they've been going strong ever since. But not just that place. There are literally tens of thousands of people, places where people have banded together all across the globe to say, we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to pray. We're going to do this thing. We're going to honor God. It's happening all over the globe. We just had like three million plus intercessors joined together to pray for the nation of Israel. That just happened a few months ago. So we are in a time when technology helps us, okay? Where we can actually do that. We could gather three million people. I mean, it had been pretty hard to do that before. But we're seeing unprecedented times. We are seeing unprecedented things in the manner of prayer and worship, okay? Uh, We are also seeing unprecedented times in terms of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom, the harvest of souls. You know, the people who are, that track these things, that keep track of people groups and who's been reached by the gospel and who hasn't been reached by the gospel and how many language groups do we still need to have the scriptures printed in and all of that sort of thing. And they are almost all all in agreement that within the next decade or two, every single people group on the planet will have had the gospel preached to them. Now, who would have thought 100 years ago that that was even possible? We're living in unprecedented times. And then the third one kind of goes without saying, Israel's back in the land, okay? I don't think anybody thought that was going to happen either, okay? Uh, there was a lot of trying to explain the scriptures about talking about Jesus or Israel back in the land because nobody could imagine how that would ever happen, but it has happened, okay? So, you're going to get the idea that I kind of think we're in Amos nine times, okay? <laughs> you don't have to agree with me, but <laughs> I'm thinking we're in Amos nine times. This is happening. This is what's happening in our generation, okay? So what's the takeaway from that what does that mean to you and me okay i got to think that if god is doing something in the midst of my generation i want to be in <laughs> okay i want to be in on it i want to be participating in it i want to be wherever his heart is that's where i want to be too and i think many of you feel, probably probably all of you feel that way too All right, so Amos 9 is kind of giving us some direction, all right, and so I'm gonna be be having a prayer time, but basically what I want you to consider is I think God wants to do something new in each one of our lives, connect us up with one of those three streams, the return of Israel to the land, the prayer and worship movement, the harvest of souls. He wants us to connect up with that in a new way that we haven't maybe done before. And that's going to look different for every person, and I'm not the judge. (laughs) I'm not going to sit there and say, well, you're not doing enough, or you're not doing it right, or whatever, okay? But we're going to ask God, how can I connect up with one of those three streams? How can I let my heart move in sympathy with your heart, God? And maybe that looks like uh, you're going to... go on a mission field, you know? Um, could mean that you're not gonna go on a mission field, but you're gonna support somebody who does. You're gonna provide friendship, or you're gonna pray for them, or you're gonna give financially to them. Somehow you're gonna connect with that, with God's heart for the harvest of souls. Maybe God's telling you, hey, get, gather some of your friends together and start praying, okay? Uh, join a prayer meeting that's already in progress somewhere, (laughs) you know, say uh, once a week I'm going to go to the prayer meeting or once a month I'm going to go to the prayer meeting whatever whatever you feel like the Holy Spirit tells you but I feel like he's going to speak to each and every one of us because we want to be wholehearted I don't think when it's my time to die I'm going to sit there and regret man I wish I hadn't prayed so much, you know probably be more like, wish I hadn't watched so much television or something, you know, but um, you're not going to regret it. You're not going to regret if you engage with God and what he is doing in the midst of your generation. Okay, so um, we're going to have, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot one thing. Kevin, bless his heart, taught us the power of testimony, okay? So I have this short video, I promise it's short. Um, Some people that I know, Brian and Hannah Wilson, they are the real deal. They are missionaries in Kyrgyzstan. And this was kind of a, just a little fun thing where it tied together worship and prayer and I thought you would enjoy it. So,
1: yeah. Uh, (laughs) CBPA. I wanted to tell you it's a story. son, Aiden, by honestly, the way. Honestly, God is doing something remarkable here in Kyrgyzstan. It's so incredible. Uh, and it really reveals the power of prayer. And I'm sure you remember that last year when we first got to Kyrgyzstan, uh, we were serving at a community center. And we served there for six months as they needed us. And we were serving in the orphanage um, out in Molavodny and serving, loving on these kids, serving the community center, um, going to the houses and, and loving on people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it w- it was just incredible. But at the end of that six months, uh, they didn't need the help anymore. And we, uh, really changed our, our direction, our focus, more of our team arrived, but we really carried that village in, in prayer, in our hearts. This entire time, because we had that, that heart that heart connection with them. Uh, we just loved it. We love these people. We love them. And so we've been lifting them up and, and so fast forward, we get to this just a couple weeks ago and we're hosting our, our second OR team. The first OR team that's actually able to stay in the guest house that you all have helped us get. And so it's just amazing the way that the Lord has provided. Uh, we were able to raise, you know, over $200,000, get a $100,000 loan. We're believing that the Lord's going to pay the rest of that off. Anyway, people come in and, and we send them out to Mollavodney. And one of the OR teams is out there and they're going house to house and they come to this place and this man is laying there and he's been paralyzed for 25 years and has not been able to walk and this OR team, a bunch of young kids, 18, 19, 20 year olds, sitting there, a girl from South Africa, they say, hey, would you pray for him? And honestly, in her heart, she said, Lord, she she actually started praying in Afrikaans, in her language, and she said, Lord, I don't even have the faith, but I know that you can (laughs) heal this man. And she prayed for him to get healed, and right there on the spot, He stood up and started walking and it's just the most incredible thing. We've been lifting up this village where, where they've been plowing for 20 years plus, and they haven't seen a move of God. They haven't seen many people get saved. They've been working and working and working, but guess what? Every powerful move of God throughout history is linked to people contending and crying out in intercession and in prayer. And for the last year, we have been lifting up Malavodni. We've been crying out in our prayer room, God, send revival to Malavodni. Would you save these people? And now we're seeing miracles in this place. This man got saved. Other people are, are going to be saved. We're believing for a revival to sweep across this village. And it's just incredible. So please pray for us. Pray for revival here in Central Asia. We love you guys. So happy for what God's doing, bless you.
0: Kevin says I should remind everybody, these, this couple was actually in this church, um, not members of this church, they came with Kirk Bennett to minister in this church and so we actually know them. This is real, this is real, this is not somebody's made up story, okay. So I'm gonna have us all stand. I'm gonna pray for you, I'm gonna give you a moment Yeah, Jesse, thanks. If you could come up. I'm going to give you a moment to just be before the Lord, have a conversation with him if you want to about what does the next step look like for you, okay? Um, And I I will just open us in prayer and then we'll do that and then Jesse's going to close us, okay? Yeah, Jesus, we just want to be all in. We want to be wholehearted, following after you, We we want to hear your voice and be able to respond to it and have um, 100% obedience coming from our lives. And so, God, I just ask that you would um, be speaking to each of my brothers and sisters that are here, that you would whisper to their hearts uh, a way forward for them, the next step for them, how they can move into your purposes and um, see, <laughs> see you move in the midst of their generation. So just take a moment.